the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into hour two. You know what else the New York Times isn't going to cover tomorrow? This from the Free Beacon. You can get it in a few other places. IRS whistleblowers told Congress today that the tax agency recommended felony charges against Hunter Biden and that the federal prosecutor handling the probe of Hunter was rebuffed from filing charges on multiple occasions. The chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee disclosed this earlier today. Jason Smith said at a press conference that two IRS employees claimed the agency sought felony charges against Hunter Biden for attempting to evade taxes and fraudulent or false statements, all felonies. The whistleblowers who worked on the Biden probe since its start further claimed that the investigation was marred by recurring unjustified delays and unusual actions outside the normal course of any investigation. The bombshell disclosure comes days after federal prosecutors in Delaware struck a plea deal with Biden on two misdemeanor tax charges. Smith asserted that Biden received a slap on the wrist for charges that have put other Americans behind bars. According to Chairman Smith, the whistleblowers testified that Hunter Biden failed to pay more than $2.2 million in taxes and received $8.3 million from foreign entities in Ukraine, China, and Romania. Biden received at least $6 million from CEFC China Energy, linked to the Chinese military's intelligence, a Romanian businessman investigated for bribery, paid Biden another million dollars for help on his legal case, and Burisma Holdings paid Hunter Biden more than eight hundred, excuse me, more than $80,000 a month to serve on its board of directors. This is, this is the real killer. In one stunning revelation, Smith cited an encrypted text message in which Hunter Biden threatened a Chinese business partner for payment by invoking his father. It was decrypted. Here's what it said. Quote, this is from Hunter Biden to his Chinese business partner. Remember, Joe Biden has never discussed business with his son. This is what the message said. Quote, I am sitting here with my father and would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Hunter Biden wrote, July 30th, 2017, message to Henry Zhao. He continued, quote, I will, make a, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction, you should know the man sitting next to me I'm waiting for the call with is my father, close quote. He's invoking his father. Father, this would be easy to discover, by the way. We have a date. It would be easy to know. Was Joe Biden sitting next to Hunter or on a trip with Hunter on that date? This seems to me a very curious revelation. Seems to me the New York Times might want to investigate that in what uh, Maureen Dowd laments as a time where Slogans, conspiracy theories, lies, and emotions are of what dominated America. Yeah. We'll see. See, they do say, they do give the store away in their, in their motto, all the news that's fit to print. 
They just they just shortened it. It's all the news as fit to print as they see fit. That would cost too much ink if you print out a million copies a day over time. Those three as we see fit. Four extra words. It's a lot of ink they're not going to pay for. It. So it's just all the news that's fit to print. Yeah. Okay. John and Phoenix, back to you, sir. Thanks for your patience. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Seth, uh, I, I didn't plan on going off tangent, but you were just talking about uh, Hunter. And, uh, oh, yes, I, I mean, that. this is so so wrong, so discouraging. Um, but what I'm hoping is, I'm hoping there's some smoking guns that surface, like maybe those 17 tapes, audio tapes, uh, two of them which included uh, conversations with uh, Joe Biden. You've heard of this. Oh, tapes, yes, right? all of that. And, I, you know, there's, I don't know why this isn't a smoking gun. I mean, he's threatening a foreign entity using his father it's, I, I don't know if there's a crime inherent because nothing there. Is a sm- nothing is a smoking gun. That, that's DOJ. correct. That's correct. Every smoking absolutely gun is turned nothing. into a watering gun. That's absolutely right. That's, a, that's why, what did I hear? Adam, they, Schiff was, looking... Adam Schiff was right the whole time. He's a hero. He's not a congressman worthy of censure. I mean, it's just, it's a parallel DOJ universe. doesn't want to know. It's a par- DOJ doesn't want to no, know. of course not. No, of course not. Anyhow, Seth, uh, the, the one thing that I did want to mention, well, two things I want to mention. I don't know, did you know that Simon and Garfunkel thoroughly disliked each other? And even at that concert, they I know a lot, other? yeah. I know, it was weird. Even at the concert I was at, John, they were bickering. Me too. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, and I, they, Paul Simon said a very weird thing in, in front of him. He said, this is a song I thought Artie and I might record together, but he had other plans and wandered off, so I just covered it myself. I just recorded They put their it. arms around yeah, each other, and they looked like they did not want to touch. I know, <laughs> I know. So such now, a, let me go to the last thing. Such a gifted but, uh, duo, unfortunate. You, 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 basically, when you guys do you know who owns the, Do you know who owns the largest private library of books in all of Manhattan? Art Garfunkel. Really? Yeah. You got to admit, uh, you got to imagine there are some pretty big collections of private book collections in Manhattan. Yeah, I love I, lo- I love Garfunkel. I don't like him so much alone. I mean, yeah. he he didn't have such a great. He didn't body write work, any of the I music. Loved, yeah, it wasn't his. Yeah. But I love Bridge Over Troubled Water. I mean, that that's a that's a masterpiece. They're all uh, masterpieces. Seth, you guys mentioned Berkeley, which then led me to believe one thing I wanted you to cover. You may not want to cover it now, but I do. If, if not, maybe you could carve off some portion tomorrow or put something together. I think us listeners would, would like to hear, at least speaking for myself, I want to hear how you went from your liberal ideology with your mentorship with, uh, is it Jaffa or Jaffe? Yeah, Jaffa, Harry Jaffa, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. How you then, tra- what were the major impetus that transformed sure. you to, towards I love that story. I love that story because it's about a good man who changed my life. One of the three most important men in my life, Professor Jeff. For the audience that doesn't know uh, this, uh, this uh, scholar, he died in 2015. I remember where I was when he died. I was about to run a marathon in Carlsbad with my friend uh, Gil. You know Gil, Bill. Um, Yes. So for those who don't know Harry Jaffa, he was, uh, I think, America's greatest Lincoln scholar, Abraham Lincoln scholar, and probably one of America's greatest Aristotle scholars, too. Sound sound <laughs> is beginning to make some sense of where I keep going. <laughs> mm-hmm. He wrote Barry Goldwater's famous um, 
famous 1964 speech. Uh, he wrote the speech, you know, the extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pers- pursuit of justice is no virtue. Uh, he said that was his first and last political speech he ever wrote. <laughs> but I'll tell the story. Yeah, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. I've done a monologue on it, but it's been some years, John. I'll, maybe I'll dust it off and do it tomorrow just for fun. Sure. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Good. So, so, I'll, good. so I want to make sure I'm tuning in in time. I mean, you're going to, you're going to yeah, do it. And, you, and if you miss it, all my, all my stuff is available on our website at 960thepatriot.com. Yeah, because uh, there's certain things in your, in the Wikipedia, you know, you have, there's a Wikipedia on you. Did you, did yeah, you know don't, that? don't believe everything you read there. No, I know. <laughs> okay. I know. That's, right. any, anybody who's conservative, <laughs> oh my God. So, okay. Right. But, okay, I'll let you get on to your other no, stuff. Well, I'll just, I only have a couple minutes left in the segment. I'll give you a, a taste if anyone is saying, tell us a little. Yeah, no, I, I didn't grow up liberal, John. I grew up socialist. I mean, I was just, it was, when we, when we, when we go, we go, man. <laughs> I was a member of the local branch of whatever SDS was. You know who the head of it was, I think, if I'm not mistaken? If she wasn't the head, she was one of the coordinators. A woman named Ellen Lauper, who was Cindy's sister. Tons of meetings with her, and I think a professor or someone from ASU. Birkenstocks, long hair, the whole thing. Anyway, uh, yeah, I went to college uh, thinking I would um, enhance and learn more leftism, and I became uh, the editor of... In Claremont, there's five colleges, uh, Pitzer, Claremont McKenna, Pomona, Harvey Mudd, and Scripps. And uh, they have a five-college weekly paper called The Collage, and I was the editor of it. And uh, Dr. Jaffa gave a big, important speech, and he was being protested uh, civilly in those days. We did civil protests. I wasn't one of them. I was just there to hear him because I had published some of his op-eds in uh, in the newspaper and uh, these lefty protesters uh, held up signs and walked out. And I wrote a column saying, though Dr. Jaffa's views are abominable, the students should have stayed there to confront him and debate him. And uh, the day it came out in print, I think it came out in print on Fridays, he called me. And he said, you think my views are abominable? Why don't you debate me? And I said, well, I'm just... A- Whatever I was, a sophomore, I'm not going to debate a world-famous political science professor. And he said, well, would you have coffee with me? And I did, and it changed my life. I'll do the rest of it tomorrow, but thank you, John. Uh, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Having mentioned uh, Randy Garden's, uh, excuse me, Randy Weingarten's appointment to a Department of Homeland Security uh, board, civilian board, um, in the last hour, because she knows so much about how to protect our kids, I suppose, if the job is not to protect them, Um it is from her mouth and her union's mouths and from Joe Biden's mouth and other administrators' mouths, including the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Rachel Levine, who continually and routinely say when the kids, they, well, they used to say 
when the kids are in the classroom, they're not the parents' kids. They're everyone's kids. They're our kids. They've dropped the in the classroom part. Joe Biden dropped it at the trans or at the pride celebration two weekends ago. And you think it it isn't a serious point. It's a very serious point. They truly believe it. They truly believe in parents patriae, the notion of parents patriae, that the state the state ideological apparatus should be between the state and the kids, not between the parents and the kids. And if you don't believe me, let me give you Abigail Schreier's rendering of something we warned about a few weeks ago. I didn't know it progressed this far. California Assembly Bill 957, AB 957. This, this piece of legislation should be as famous as SB 1070. The nation got to know what SB 1070, you couldn't open up a newspaper or uh, turn on the nightly news without hearing about SB 1070 in Arizona. Parts of which I remind were upheld by the Supreme Court, including the most criticized parts by the left. I think we should make AB 957 that famous. I'll just read it to you. It's passed the House or the Assembly in California. It's in the Senate now. It's passed a Senate committee. It's on its way. Abby Schreier writes, Gender ideologues in California let the mask slip or perhaps just toss it away. A new bill, AB 957, directs family court judges to award custody based in part on a parent's affirmation of a child's gender identity, which the bill defines as intrinsic to the, quote, health, safety, and welfare of the child, close quote. The three other factors a judge must consider in custody disputes, a parent's history of abuse, presence in a child's life, and habitual use of drugs, illegal drugs. Leaving little doubt what the state thinks of parents who do not affirm a child's gender journey, the statute places their conduct in line with physical abuse, neglect, and depravity. Okay? So a parent who doesn't go along with a child's decision to transition is put on par with physical abuse and drug use. Defenders of the bill point out that affirmation of a child's gender identity is only one factor for a judge to consider in custody determinations, like history of abuse abuse and addiction. And you know what? Like history of abuse and drug addiction, it's likely to be decisive. How far must a parent go in the pursuit of affirmation? The bill doesn't say. Affirmation can include anything from allowing your daughter to adopt a male name and pronoun to commencing a schedule of hormones and surgeries that are variously risky, irreversible, and without proven mental health benefit. Puberty blockers, a staple of so-called gender-affirming medicine, as they call it, can produce permanent sexual dysfunction and infertility, diminish cognitive development, undermine bone, density, and tooth enamel. How much is custody or visitation of your daughter worth to you? The gender thugs want to know. Sterilization? Splitting teeth? It's enough if you're willing to call your 12-year-old daughter Ethan. Is it? Will allowing your middle school daughter to shave her head suffice, or must you also consent to her medically unnecessary double mastectomy? In a state where these chemical and surgical options are available for minors, do you know that? 
Parental endurance becomes the only limiting factor. How much damage will you countenance for the chance to hold your daughter's hand in recovery? Appellate courts are unlikely to clarify the bill's chilling ambiguities. For one, family court is a repository of broad judicial discretion. For another, few parents are brave enough to test it. Consider the crucible. Accept the affirmation condition and greenlight your child's gender transition. Reject the condition and the gender train rolls on anyway, just without you. Win-win or lose-lose. How can any legislator honestly claim that affirmation of a child's gender identity is always in her best interest? If she is the 12th child to do so in her 7th grade class? If she arrives at this epiphany after a weekend spent on YouTube? No chance that the child might be succumbing to peer influence. No chance that the parents who've raised her might know her just a little better than she does herself. Today, the notion that affirmation is necessarily in the best interest of every child can no longer seriously be believed. In the last two years, England, Sweden, and Finland have all conducted rigorous scientific reviews of pediatric gender medicine and concluded the opposite. The efficacy, far too doubtful. The harms, too grave. These countries, every one of them liberal, responded to their independent reviews by shuttering pediatric gender clinics, curtailing the availability of these medicines, and restricting them to experimental settings if they didn't ban them entirely. But in the United States, where medicine is decentralized and medical organizations politicized, no such inquest can switch off this fast-moving belt conveying children toward harm. Not even judicial review by the Supreme Court of the United States is likely to save families. A family law expert, Scott Altman, professor of law at University of Southern California, said, quote, I don't think there's any question that this is constitutional, close quote. Where parents agree, there might be parental rights to claim under the 14th Amendment, but when parents disagree, Altman said, quote, I think their substantive due process rights to guide the child's upbringing are offsetting each other. The state must solve the dispute somehow. Why not with faddish pseudoscience? While the bill technically only directs judges in custody disputes, the judiciary is unlikely to miss its implication. In the eyes of the state, parents who reject gender ideology are abusers of children. Another bit of leverage claimed by the state, designed to box families in, pressing mom and dad with an offer they cannot refuse... Scott Wilk, a Republican state senator, summarized the gist of AB 957 nicely. If you love your children, you need to flee California. You need to flee now. But to where? I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Dion DiMucci interviewed him once, too. Great musician, great guy. I interviewed him because you know what he said he was doing these days? What? Helping drug addicts seek recovery. Pretty cool. Pretty Very cool. Admirable. Huh? Yeah, no, he went through it himself, and that's what he called, thought his mission. That's what Paul Williams does. Little Enos from uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. The writer of all the music that you like, old-fashioned love song and... All the Carpenter's music that you like. He wrote all that. Yeah, yeah, the Love Boat theme. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's what he does now, too. There's a documentary on him called, Is Paul Williams Still Alive? 
Well, is he? Yes. 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 <laughs> that's a weird name. Well, the guy who who did the documentary on him, that's he was sitting around with some friends one day asking that question. Ah, okay. So yeah. let me put in a word for our sponsors at Midas Gold. Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing. China, India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the list grows, are conducting international trade in local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system and causing failures. The Biden administration sends hundreds of billions of dollars abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure here at home. However, the biggest financial threat may be coming from within. Central bank digital currency. It's real. The patents have been filed and the big banks have released plans for implementation. The vets at Midas Gold Group see terrible implications. The end of financial privacy, the end of cash, big government able to see your every purchase, ties to social credit. Own private currency, which is gold and silver, and now get free silver just for asking the Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Trust the only precious metals dealer, Seb Gorka, I and thousands of you already do. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. MidasGoldGroup.com. Do you remember this uh, last month, this uh, speaker at uh, Cooney Law School who, um, let's see, what was her name here? I have it here. Uh, yes, the speaker, uh, the City University of New York's public law school's commencement featured a speech from a graduating student calling for a revolution to challenge, challenge oppressive institutions in America. The speaker mentioned institutions of law and order, such as the military police, ICE, and the U.S. prison system. Quote, I come to you all from the rich soil of Yemen, raised by the humble streets of Queens, said future lawyer Fatima Musa Muhammad who was selected by the 2023 class to speak at the graduation ceremony. I chose Cooney Law School for its articulated mission, one of the few institutions to recognize that the law is a manifestation of white supremacy that continues to oppress and suppress people in this nation and around the world, Fatima said. No one person will save the world. No single movement will liberate the masses. Those who brought the ferocity of the violence, those who carry the revolution, the people, the masses, those who brought the ferocity, those who need our protection, they will carry this revolution. And the revolution that lives so loudly despite not being televised, we are no longer going to capitulate to our oppressors, no longer going to put our hopes in their depraved consciousness. On and on she went. You can imagine where it goes from there. No, she didn't fix the cable TV. Well, in a follow-up story today, we learned from Fox that this law grad is now complaining. Fatima Musa Muhammad is now complaining, having broken her silence on the commencement speech. Um, she says, quote, I would not change a single word of my speech, and I would say it louder, but it is impacting my studies for the New York Bar. Because of the comments I've been receiving. Poor thing. Poor thing. I'm sorry. By the way, does anyone care in New York about people who invoke insurrection and incitement to violence? I think Jerry Nadler might or Chuck Schumer or perhaps uh, another congressman or senator from the state of New York. Is, is that nothing they care about? 
But you see, you get to do this, and you should think it has no pushback, no consequences, no response. You should be entitled to no response and just a Pacific, easygoing study for the New York bar exam. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brett Johnson is a partner with Snell and Wilmer, law firm based here in Phoenix, offices around the country. He's our constitutional scholar and um, just a good man. SWLaw.com is their website. And uh, Brett, you had um, you and I had earlier in the year talked about some of the cases sitting before the Supreme Court, one of them being a big and important Voting Rights Act case. And it came out a few weeks ago, so uh, I, I do. We, we had an intervening couple of other important legal issues to discuss. So just for, a few, uh, yeah, just a few. So if you'll <laughs> forgive me uh, for the violation of the doctrine of latches and having you on now to talk about it, I'll forgive you that it's not a Wednesday and we're having you on a Thursday. How's that? Fair enough. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> what did What did we learn in Alan Milligan? I'll tell you what I learned. I learned that Clarence Thomas has a big following of like 10 people who emailed me and said, you have to read his dissent in this case. Anyway, I I didn't mean to prejudice your jury. Tell us what happened here. No, 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 no. And, and, you know, uh, Justice Thomas, just like, um, you know, Justice Scalia back in the day, who basically revamped a lot of opinions. When when you look at the the current majority on many cases, you know they're referring back to Scalia's uh, dissent yes, early sir. on in his career. Yes, so sir. so same thing here is that uh, Justice Thomas, who's getting up there in years, is is definitely laying down the mantle for future generations Good. of justices, especially when he's pulling one or two with him uh, along the way. So I do I do think it's it's well reading and. It's it's a very long descent, so hopefully you have a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just just the opening is enticing. The question presented is whether Section Two of the Voting Rights Act requires the state of Alabama to intentionally redraw its longstanding congressional districts so that black voters can control a number of seats roughly proportional to the black share of the state's population. Section Two demands no such thing, and if it did, the Constitution would not permit it. Pretty good setup. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good setup, and that's why, you know, for us that actually, you know, listen to the Supreme Court arguments, which has been actually pretty entertaining over the last few years, highly recommend people listen. You can't watch because it's not on TV yet, but you could listen, and, and definitely I recommend people do. So back in October when this case was heard for the first time, um, everybody thought that the majority was definitely on Alabama's side. Just so everybody understands the background of this case, it's a redistricting case. Every 10 years, we redistrict uh, the political maps to restructure the congressional lines, both at the legislature and the, fed- or the state level and the federal level. And that's what Alabama did here. What Alabama uh, specifically did, though, was that they used a race-neutral, basically, computer program. You enter in the parameters, communities of interest, compactness, um, ensuring that geographical lines are followed, and out came some maps. And it was very, very race-neutral, which is completely different than what Section 2 has done for the Voting Rights Act over the last several uh, decades. So that was what came out of this. And so immediately um, it it was challenged and said that, no, only one majority black district was put in place. There should have been two, based off of the numbers of blacks within Alabama, which is about 27%. Again, Alabama pushed back and said that's inappropriate under the U.S. Constitution um, to use race in any factor in redistricting. 
And what the Supreme Court did in October during our argument was really push the challengers on this whole notion. And, and everybody, me included, thought that it would change the dynamics of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. What the court did, though, in, in the actual opinion with Chief Justice Roberts, and many people have heard me say this on this on this program before, Chief Justice Roberts has said that dividing people based off of race is a sordid affair and we should get away from it. So the fact that Chief Justice Roberts is the one who wrote this yeah. opinion upholding the a little eyebrow raising, yeah. A little yeah. eyebrow raising, yeah. and then you obviously have Justice Thomas's dissent. So but what, what Chief Justice Roberts really was saying is is that when you look at our precedent in section of, of section two cases, the challengers and the three judge panel who evaluated this case, two of them being Trump appointees, basically followed the law, and we're not going to sidestep their analysis in this, and we're not going to change our Section 2 precedent um, based off of how Alabama wants us to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, Brett, I guess the difference between what the majority and Clarence Thomas is saying, really, at the end of the day, is that I guess the argument underlying Clarence Thomas's objection is that the assumptions here is that race or racially racially categorizing people in voting districts determines outcomes. I mean, that's ultimately his philosophical point, which he is against, obviously, that form of thinking, right? He, he is, and, and he's, he's, a, he's against basically – um, just making the assumption based off of skin color that you're going to be voting in the same blocks right. to right. be able to to effectuate that. Right. Now, again, what Alabama, the computer program, didn't do very well was follow all of the other criteria yeah. in the sense that there was a, a jigsaw, we sometimes call gerrymandering right. around right. Um, uh, different things. And so when, when the challengers were able to put up a very compact map and said, hey, two um, districts that would support the African American community, and they they're entitled to it. It, it was it was kind of hard under this record to be able to push. Mm-hmm. Now, what's going to be interesting, and this is what uh, Justice Gorsuch was pushing, is this isn't forever. Mm-hmm. We need what's called a temporal uh, defining time frame when this is going to be done, mm-hmm. and that has not been presented to the Supreme Court yet. It was in previous cases on on voting type election cases, Crawford being one. Shelby County, which got rid of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that at some point we as a society have evolved to such a degree that this, that the voting Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is no longer going to be necessary. And right. that is what Justice Kavanaugh was trying to push yeah. as to we really want to see that case. What, we, when, what will be the parameters as to when that's not needed? And what Chief Justice Roberts answers to that in his, in his uh, majority is, Section 2 should only be used in the extreme cases, and he is correct. Over the last several years, Section 2 cases have not fared well um, in district court cases, including here in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So everything comes back to Arizona. You know how I do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Very nicely done. Now, we're we're, we're about to get another tranche of important cases coming down, aren't we? Yeah, we're getting towards the end of of the, the... uh, the season at the Supreme Court, so it's going to be interesting to see what exactly is coming down and and um, how the how the court's going to rule, and in some of them they they might decide decline to um, proceed and and send it back down. So it'll it'll be very very interesting to see uh, what the Supreme Court does over the next week. When do, do they? Would, they won't announce anything tomorrow, would they? 
It would be next week. Not, n- next week, yeah. usually Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. It's Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, Thursday. Right. Correct. Right, right, right. Well, at least they'll give us a weekend without having to deal with affirmative action. I mean, that is going to be the big the big one. They'll probably, I mean, my guess is they strike it down in the Harvard, North Carolina case. And I'm going to guess it will be very, very tightly related only to higher education. That's my guess. And when you and when you read, read the tea leaves and you yeah. read some of the commentators that they've put out this case yeah. in front of that case yeah. to show that they're not politicized yeah. and yeah. there's actually a balance. Yeah. That's a good way so, to look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I know you wanted to do social contract stuff. Do you want to do that next week? Absolutely. All right. Sounds good. I, all right. Do I dust off Hobbes, Rousseau? What do you want me to read? To get prepared oh, both. For? Please, please. Uh, all right, brother. Yeah. Uh, you you think my it. weekends are nasty, <laughs> brutish, and short, huh? Okay. I have time for that. <laughs> Brett Johnson, we love you. <laughs> Snell and Wilmer Law Firm, folks. SWLaw.com. Brett Johnson, a partner there in our Justice Jackson Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies. We'll be right back. With bank failures and stock market volatility and talk of a recession on the horizon and hardened inflation, you ask yourself, where do I go if I want to invest any money? And why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve? It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y Refi. They're headquartered here locally. They, as well as I, encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. And I can tell you, you will not get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. And when you meet with the team at Y Refi, you'll see why I trust and like them so much. And you can too. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10 and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. Paul's in Mesa. Hello, Paul. Hello, Seth. You are a local treasure, my friend, and you ought to be a national one. <laughs> You're so kind. Thanks, brother. <laughs> well, there you go. Hey, uh, you know, you read uh, something about the uh, New York um, yeah. law student university student yeah there. yeah so perfect segue here i mean so here's my question because obviously we would disagree i just want to make a few points and then i'll listen to your comments on it okay so what what metrics should our side use for determining when the revolution begins and, okay. I'll, and I'll just say this so what do we have in common with the leaders of the democratic party what what do you and i have in common for instance with nancy pelosi or chuck schumer nothing I mean, you know, we used to disagree with the left, but the left loved America. I don't think they love America anymore. I mean, so where are the reasonable Democrats that lead the party? Who could be trusted on the Democratic side if the Republicans were to leave the room for a minute? You know, Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan used to get along so well. They disagreed, but they figured out how to, you know, how to do things. That all the, all the totalitarian societies of the 20th century came to power because immorality, and the society's bought into lies. Look what we're buying today. And then I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that government takes over by becoming minute and meddling. And then mm-hmm. he ends by saying what is left is to spare them all the trouble of living. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I would probably agree that government governs best, it governs least, yes, you know, and that's course. not the case for the yeah. left. So 
with all the lies that we're buying today, yeah. I don't know what the metric is. Do, do okay. I wait for okay. okay. no, I, 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 I take the question, and I take, by the way, thank you again for your very nice Sorry, compliment. I went on too no, long. no, 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 it's fine. It's, 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 um, it's a short segment. I have a guest coming up. Would you permit me to maybe address this substantially? Maybe I'll do a monologue on it tomorrow. Would you allow me to do that? To- would you allow me to get, have one more day on this just because the music is playing? Fabulous. Would that be okay, Paul? I would love it. It's a you big bet. question, and it, it deserves an equally uh, thoughtful answer, and it was thoughtfully poised. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. We'll do it tomorrow. Uh, Sam Stone coming right up. Be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.